Support for the Warm Regards podcast and the following message come from Wonder Capital, allowing individuals to invest in solar projects. Earn up to 7.5% annually while diversifying your portfolio and combating global climate change. Create an account for free at wondercapital.com warm. Wonder Capital, where impact investing meets capitalism. Hi, everyone. This is Warm Regards, a dialogue between the climate scientists, newsmakers, journalists, and people on the front lines of climate change. I'm Andy Revkin, speaking to you at the moment from Washington, D.C., where it's a beautiful spring day here in late February. It's been a yet another wild climate ride um, the last few months. Uh, our colleague, Eric Holthouse, who can't be with us this week, uh, as, as the same case for um, Jacqueline Gill, he's been... Uh, tweeting an enormous amount about Arctic weirdness. This has been an epically strange winter for Arctic sea ice with these blobs of hot air getting up in the north and the blobs of frigid air coming down into the northeast where I live. And um, that's just one of the many elements that have been startling scientists and, and making life conversational for everybody who uh, thinks about weird weather and a changing climate. It's also the 30th, we're now beginning the 30th year of the global warming story as a story, as a front page story, as a something that's uh, media now have the big media like the New York Times and Washington Post now have half a dozen or more reporters just on this climate beat. Um, 30 years ago when I started on the climate beat, there, there were one or two people. Uh, and so things, it's, and here we are, uh, that was 1988 and now we're in 2018. A big moment, the IPCC, Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, was also launched uh, 30 years ago. The last time atmospheric carbon dioxide concentration was 350 parts per million, was 1988, 30 years ago. The emissions trends are up, up, up. Um, there's signs of progress and deployment of renewable energy, but there's also abundant evidence of the enduring need and demand for um, fossil fuels around the world. Uh, still about 80% of the mix of uh, our energy, primary energy. And in all of this, uh, there are people studying every aspect of this question, the climate question, the what do you do about it question. Today we'll be focusing on, on one, Kim Cobb, who is Georgia Power Chair and Director of Global Change Program at um, Georgia Institute of Technology down in Atlanta. She's been working particularly on the climate questions that are answerable by looking back in time and understanding how that can relate to what is ahead in time. I'm going to start right in by saying thanks for being with us, Kim. No, thanks for having me. And I think I first got looking at your work in the context of El Nino, if I'm not misremembering things and coral reefs and stuff. But if you could give the listeners just a quick sketch of how you how you came of, came of age as a scientist. You know, what did you first study? And then how did you get into this climate change question? Yeah. So you can really track uh, my science, my love for science, all the way back to when I was a kid. Um, and I ended up in college studying biology for my degree, convinced that I was going to medical school. And about uh, halfway through my undergraduate career, I realized that there was this whole thing called climate change out there that was only then kind of on dim horizon, especially in undergraduate courses there. 
um, and, and really decided that I wanted to add on a geology degree and refocus my undergraduate career towards environmental sciences kind of at the 11th hour. It was a scramble. And uh, I applied to graduate school at uh, Scripps Institution of Oceanography and uh, convinced that I could um, understand more about this climate change space, which had you know, intrigued me so much as an undergraduate um, by studying past climate variations and where we've been, essentially, and what it might mean for our future. And so I landed at Scripps kind of can really uh, bent on working in geologic records uh, to understand the, the past, present and future. And of course, uh, got myself into studying corals, specifically uh, reconstructing ocean temperatures and ocean temperature extremes related to El Nino. And really, that has brought me all the way to today, where uh, obviously corals are at this, at once a recorder of past climate variability, which is what I've been doing for 20 years. But right now, they're the victims of uh, warming ocean temperatures themselves as well. And so um, that has landed me into a, a new space as a researcher, as a scientist, and as a human, frankly, um, that uh, is going to help shape the rest of my career, no doubt. That's an interesting parallel to, um, I think it was Lonnie Thompson. I wrote about him a long time ago when he was up on Kilimanjaro. And I, I didn't wasn't there with him, but writing about his work there. And he was talking about how this uh, the layered ice up there was a valuable repository, but it was going away. So that same, it's not a living organism, but it was that same idea that his, his libraries that he treasured um, were actually being impacted by the thing that they, uh, we're providing insights on. Yeah, sad. It's very sad for those of us who spent a whole career uh, chasing these incredibly valuable archives, um, and then to have a wake-up call that reminds us that uh, this is only one small part of a whole ecosystems that are uh, changing much, much more quickly than we as scientists had anticipated. And that's a, believe me, a grim wake up call for a, a mid career scientist like me. The other interesting insights that, as a reporter that I've gleaned by talking to people looking back in time is uh, they're, they, they very much remind me, you know, in the news process, we're always focused on the here and now and wow, that was a bad storm or um, that was an epic rainfall. And, and uh, in talking to people like Jeff Donnelly at Woods Hole, uh, back in 2007 or even earlier, um, um, Anders Norin. In 2002, I wrote this piece for the Times about a, a really interesting study of lake beds sediments as a proxy for uh, past um, rainfall, intense, like intense rainfall. Mm. Uh, and, and it was really sobering because it said that through the last several thousand years, there are these periods and pulses, at least in the Northeast, uh, looking at uh, more than a dozen lakes of unbelievable um, uh, turbidity generating uh, storms and, uh, you know, scouring storms where the lake bed is basically mud, 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 and then there'd be a layer of gravel, then mud, mud, yeah. mud, mud, gravel. And that would be the hillsides of Vermont washing into the lake. Uh -huh. uh, and, and so it's very, it, it, it helps remind me also about that there's there's kind of time scales of variability that are important to consider and making sure what we're looking at now is is you know when we talk now about extreme you have to say extreme compared to what and and i i don't know whether i know in your studies of el nino patterns going back in time um and then elucidating how that what that meaning is going forward it's kind of a mixture of, of 
mixture of knowledge that that's produced. Yeah. How, how does that how does that work in your mind as you think about um, what lies ahead and what more can be gleaned by looking further back or looking more widely geographically back at for records like that? Oh, oh my goodness! I mean, there, there's a treasure trove waiting out there to be discovered and to be brought to bear on these most pressing issues related to um, sea level rise, related to the uh, potential collapse of ice sheets, related to the capacity for our natural world to take up carbon dioxide from the air, uh, related to the statistics of extremes. Um, all of these things, the, the uh, past records of climate and associated variables can really provide uh, important constraints on. These are questions that we'll be facing. Um, of course, we're facing them now, but we will be facing them in, in much more urgent states in the next decades, uh, needing mm-hmm. more refined answers about timescales and rates of change and, and how we can prepare and what kinds of decisions we need to make as a society. So um, paleoclimate, the field of past uh, climate variability, has come so far from um, kind of storytelling about past climate states and and kind of, wow, look what happened to our planet, um, to a really quantitative (laughs) science where people are bringing um, really refined tools to bear from multiple sources to multiple records and, and delivering up records that can compete in their clarity and in their resolution in their age control with the instrumental record of climate. So um, we're really creating an extensions uh, further back in time across these key variables of our climate system uh, that we can use uh, to compare with, for example, a climate model output and uh, try to understand how what they're doing well, what they're not doing well. And we need desperately these kinds of long, high resolution, uh, quantitative records. And the field's come so far, but it still has so much to give. And that's the really exciting part for the next generation. Is the, um, are the, is the sort of funding community adequately aware of that opportunity? You know, when I say, I'm not pointing the finger just at NSF or whatever, but looking ahead again, if you want to make climate modeling more useful, um, it would seem really important to integrate as much as possible these these kinds of um, evidence banks into yeah. modeling. And and, right. and and then the other thing I I um, I remember when that Norin paper came out in two thousand two in, in Nature, the first question I asked was like, "Hey, this is amazing!" And someone mentioned it's really important to know that's just a regional reading, you know, from the northeastern part of North America. And I asked some people, you know how much is this being assessed or, or integrated or cross-checked with what we know from boreal, boreal Canada or what we know from Western North America or what we know from Siberia and Glenn McDonald, I think at UCLA at that time, there was a work underway to try to create sort of a, an integrated database um, or thinking base, you know, across the Northern hemisphere of, of mm. paleo records. Is that, are, is there, is that happening, you know, for also for things like what you look at? Absolutely. So the large scale uh, collection and synthesis of all of these kind of point sources of individual records that individual PIs have collected over the last decades, uh, there are huge efforts underway, mostly associated with a uh, kind of a loose international consortium called Pages 2K, where the 2K means 2000 years of climate reconstruction. And so we've had um, continent level syntheses, we've had hemisphere level syntheses, And uh, of course, most of these are allowing us to ask more 
uh, fine scale questions, bring more robust data to bear because we're dealing with these very large collected data sets aggregated together. Um, and that's really an important advance and something that's you know ongoing and something that most paleoclimate scientists are are a part of in some way because of its uh, a magnitude of effort. And with respect to the incorporation of paleoclimate lines of evidence into uh, modeling frameworks, um, this is really a field that's in its infancy as well. Uh, of course, historically, we've had thousands of people who call themselves climate scientists um, who really are anchored in physics of the atmosphere and ocean circulation and how they're mm. represented in climate models. And then you have the geologists uh, bringing corals uh, up from the ocean and, and working on tree rings. And, and, you know, as you talked about Lonnie, Lonnie Thompson summiting um, mountains to bring us back ice cores from these different remote regions. And so the geologists uh, historically have not uh, been terribly well integrated into uh, what you might call the physical science of, of climate science. And so that is changing, but it's, again, something that uh, I wish would happen faster. But I do note, for example, that in the sixth assessment report of the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change that's going to be taking up a good bit of our bandwidth as scientists for the next four to five years, um, you know, paleoclimate has gone from being, first of all, non-existent in the early reports to its own chapter in the last report, which I thought, wow, that's amazing that we have a, own a chapter in working group one <laughs> for the synthesis report. We must have arrived. But now what's happening with this report is that paleoclimate lines of evidence and constraints and uh, scientific um, work has been incorporated uh, explicitly into each of the chapters of the uh, working group run physical science report for the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change Six Assessment. And so uh, maybe that's when we really have arrived, is when we can sit side by side with physical climate scientists and discuss sea level constraints, bringing to bear modern observations, climate models, and paleoclimate sources of information. And so I think that's reflecting where the field is going. And I'm very, very uh, happy to see that. I think funding agencies are would be um, wise to pay attention to this. There are some pockets of money, NSF, that are uh, funding uh, joint projects between paleoclimate folks and modern climate physicists. Um, but obviously, uh, for the most part, the physical climate scientists uh, really command uh, a lion's share of the climate science funding at these agencies like NOAA, um, NSF, etc. And so I think that that doesn't reflect the uh, strategic priorities uh, for climate science, in my opinion, of course. <laughs> yeah. Uh, who, who, ar who arbitrates that? Or is it just because of history? How much of this is just the path dependency of how the IPCC, the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, evolved? so much as an atmospheric science kind of process. The other thing that you reminded me of is how like ocean acidification always came very late into the, the game because I think there weren't oceanographers, you know, thinking about this early on or integrated. Is this, was it always sort of biased toward the atmosphere? Well, I think that, you know, the, um, the questions that, uh, well, you know, first of all, climate change and global warming really emerged as an atmospheric phenomenon, something to For study sure. that was going on with greenhouse gases. And this was affecting the radiative balance of our planet and uh, it was affecting surface warming um, and it had clear dynamical implications. And so I think that it was really born out of physics. But we quickly saw through the work of Michael Mann and the reconstructions related to the hockey stick that uh, paleoclimate data can really provide a glimpse at what our climate used to be and exactly how far it's come. 
and it's it's just critically it's become critically important to extend that baseline of instrumental data uh, because most of our instrumental data is solidly rooted in the late industrial era, really post nineteen seventy right. when we started having satellites up in the sky. So the role for paleoclimate has expanded and become a lot more central to the climate science mission. Uh, but yes, uh, there are certain uh, you know, certain arms and enhanced knocking on doors at NSF and new pots of money. Uh, that have historically not been open to paleoclimate scientists, but I personally know one of them extremely well, uh, happen to know this woman quite well, uh, who's been trying to uh, apply to these physically dominated pockets of money there uh, with mixed success. But this is a tide that's coming. It's long overdue. And it will be successful because uh, we have so much to offer as a community in, in this kind of um, uh, emergent constraints, uh, detection of emergent constraints in the climate system. Uh, what are what's changing and what data can we bring to bear on how fast things are changing? Yeah, I, I just want to, this is, conversation reminded me also of something that happened early on uh, when I was writing about sea ice in the Arctic and modelers. And I think it was Marika Holland at the National Center for Atmospheric Research. I was meeting with her out there in Boulder. I'm sure it was 10 years ago or more, around 2007. And, and I asked if she had ever been to the Arctic and she hadn't. And I didn't. I, I can't remember if I wrote this at the time or not, but I sort of pitched to the community. You know, maybe everyone needs to go on a field trip, <laughs> like <laughs> modelers, modelers and observers. You know. Yeah, I mean, I, I basically think there should be a. I've said this before. There should be a unique pot of money uh, at NSF that says that uh, for folks like me who are using taxpayer dollars to go out and fund these exotic field expeditions to recover these you know, really critical records of climate extremes, in my case, um, that we should be able to tap a special pot of money to bring a climate modeler along and, and really show them how you generate paleoclimate data, what it takes, and kind of have that uh, on their skin experience of the uncertainties uh, that we have as, as scientists, but also the, the intrinsic value and uniqueness of this data. Uh, and so I, I've long said that, but alas, it has never come to be. Oh well, maybe we can press the case. I'll I'll do it as a as a communicator, and uh, you do it as a communicative scientist. And and yes. you also mentioned something that I wonder if is playing a role. I couldn't tell if you were saying you some of the people you've gotten to know has been like literally rubbing shoulders with people in these other fields. Um, you know, the idea that you said that now in the sixth assessment of the Intergovernmental Panel that. Uh, paleo is sort of now part of it will be part of each chapter not just its own little sanctum is that yeah how much of that has been through just cross-disciplinary dialogue that never would have happened um, I don't know 10 or 15 years ago oh that, that a lot of it I mean as I said paleo climate data has uh, matured immeasurably over the last decade and uh, we have been bringing, we've been challenging ourselves and our colleagues to bring more value to the pressing questions of climate science, these core questions. Um, and I think we've been delivering that value pretty systematically. And so I think it's, it's really twofold. It's um, the maturity of climate science in terms of understanding the kinds of questions that 
we just can't use the instrumental record for. There are plenty of them. Um, and how to uh, meet these, uh, this burgeoning, super high quality set of data emerging from the pale climate community, how can we best leverage that in an integrated way? So I also think that with the IPCC report, uh, the direct involvement of Valerie Messon-Delmont, who is uh, co-leading the entire Working Group One effort, and she is a pale climate scientist, um, that has to, has to go a long, long way in uh, wow. enabling some of the structural changes that we're seeing in this six assessment report. Wow. Um, do, do you think there's value in, in this work um, just in sort of, let me rephrase this, a lot of the kind of um, the general public debate that's emerged around global warming has been focused on um, Oh, it's models, you know, and, right. and does some of this, have you found in just interacting with the general public and in Georgia, I'm sure you interact with a wide range of people in the general public, does having a sort of a demonstrable concrete record of uh, at least illustrating vulnerability or, you know, the hazards that are in the system. And then secondly, helping potentially to illuminate how global warming could worsen some things. Um, has this helped in that realm, not just sort of in the IPCC? Yes, I, I think it, it's an incredible storytelling opportunity that has a pot of data at the end of it. And so in terms of my own work, um, yes, when I give public lectures, I, I always bring a lot of pretty pictures and, and stories about how we conduct our field work and the questions that we're trying to chase. Um, but when I put the data plot up there from a coral record of past temperatures, and it shows that, yeah, some stuff has happened over the last millennium, but what's happening now is way outside the limits of, mm. of temperature variability in the recent past, um, it tells its own story. And it tells it in a way that, that I could never do or uh, uh, physical climate scientists could never do. It, it's a powerful visual that immediately speaks to you uh, in terms of what we're, what we're up against and, and how far we've come already in terms of um, altering our climate system. So I think that's really one of the early uh, recognitions of, of the power of these kinds of data sets. Obviously, it has landed folks like Michael Mann in the hot seat, uh, one of the people to generate you know, one of the so-called early hockey sticks that has been, of course, well reproduced um, across many different efforts uh, across the globe since then. And, you know, from my own perspective in the Central Pacific, far, far away from terrestrial data sets, um, I have my coral version of a hockey stick, right? Mm -hmm. um, that's from a single site with a completely different archive and a completely different storyteller. So uh, I think it really speaks to more broadly the power of diverse storytellers, of um, diverse approaches to telling the story of the data, and uh, the power of individual data sets to allow the public to engage with the science in a, in a, in a different way than the working group one, a six assessment report, <laughs> yeah. uh, many, many hundreds of pages would. I, I have to mention, I found the, the website pastglobalchanges.org. It, it looks like that's a shortcut to um, pages 2K. And uh -huh. so people can... Um, Listeners, if you want to learn more about that program, trying to integrate across all this paleo work, uh, pastglobalchanges.org seems to be a good starting place. Support for the Warm Regards podcast and the following message comes from Wonder Capital, the leading solar investment platform. With Wonder, individual investors like you can now invest in large-scale solar energy projects across the U.S., earning up to 7.5% annually and helping to fight global climate change. 
Wonder's newest fund, Wonder Capital 5, has raised more than $10 million from investors like you in its first 100 days. Visit wondercapital.com warm to find out how you can begin investing in solar energy projects while earning up to 7.5% annually and also helping in the fight against climate change. Again, that's wondercapital.com warm. Wonder Capital, where impact investing meets capitalism. Yeah, and you have your own, do you have your own blog? Oh, yeah. Or, so, uh, you know, outlet. Uh, can you talk a little bit about your life as a communicator? <laughs> it's uh, it's full. It's a full life as a communicator. <laughs> so I was just on film uh, midday today uh, talking about um, the formative moments of my life between the ages of eight and 10 years old and <laughs> how that brought me here. So uh, that was a, a time warp experience today, but I do a lot of public engagement. So the primary platform that I use is, of course, Twitter. And you can mm -hmm. find me there at Corals in Caves, kind of like Cookies in Cream. Um, and I also I do have a blog that I don't update near enough. And I, I hesitate to to put it out there. But it's, I think, coblab.blogspot.com. Um, and you can see some of my past posts to get an idea of, of some of the issues that I, I tried to treat in my communication. Um, obviously, I'm really interested in, in telling the stories of how we do our work as paleoclimate scientists. Um, it's part of what drove me to, to uh, this work is the field work and the adventure and the, the sheer challenge of delivering high quality, robust data sets uh, from these living archives. To me, that's just kind of mind blowing that, that you can uh, achieve such a high level of uh, rigor and, and accuracy with these kinds of records if you try hard enough. And you're, you know, obviously have to surmount all the odds of nature throwing wrenches at you and, and wrenches literally uh, being thrown at you uh, in the field when things <laughs> don't, don't go well. So it's it's uh, it's been a twenty year process of um, amazing uh, you know kind of experiences for me as a scientist as as an adventure seeker and as somebody who's committed to unlocking the vast potential of paleoclimate data. So I try to talk about that on my Twitter account, um, episodically on my blog. And then, of course, the other issue that you'll see me bring a lot is issues of diversity and inclusion in science, um, something that I hold a, a formal title here for at Georgia Tech um, and something that I'm committed to in terms of community change and, and bringing awareness to this and trying to do everything I can to move the needle on that. And then more recently, I would say that aside from just the storytelling of paleoclimate and sharing that wonder and challenge that I have, and the diversity aspect. More recently, I've really thrown myself into engagement um, on, on the climate solutions front. And this is really from uh, pivots from the um, just life-altering experience of witnessing corals at my research site that I've been working on happily for 20 years uh, just be decimated by El Nino-related warming of the of oceans over nine very, very long and very hot months at my research site. And so, you know, we had 85% coral loss, that's mortality at my research site during the last El Nino event. And I had to uh, go down there every few months and witness it uh, unrolling before my eyes. And mm. I, I don't think you can go through something like that and um, not kind of check yourself and audit your life choices and, and see if they add up for you the same way that they did before you witnessed something like that. And so uh, for me, 
coming out of that, um, you know, it was it was pretty uh, earth earth shattering. It also coincided with the election of an administration that I knew and has, of course, since been borne out to be very hostile to um, climate science and, and climate solutions more generally, um, and science most generally as well, of course. And so these this has really caused a, a turning of the page in my own life as a scientist, mm. uh, as a mother, as a as a citizen, um, in in ways I could never have predicted. And so now I'm really focused on how I can engage the public, uh, invite them to take part in climate solutions, large and small, and of course um, use my position here at the university to try to enact the kind of institutional change and, and create resources around this so that uh, we may do what we can here in Georgia uh, to move the needle on, on climate solutions as well. Yeah. Um, there's so much rich stuff that emerged just in that last minute. Um, it's hard to know where to start. I'll just very briefly tick down some things that fascinate me. One, um, the work you're doing on inclusion and um, mm. diversity is so important. And it reminded me of Kate Raworth, uh, an environmental economist who a few years ago, um, you know, I was on the Anthropocene Working Group for a little while, this this entity that was trying to make a judgment of the, you know, evidence that we've entered a geological epoch of our own making. Um, and I, I wrote from our meeting in Berlin of it. I noticed that uh, looking around, it was essentially an all-male <laughs> panel, and and she she came out with the hashtag Manthropocene, and <laughs> and she uh, she said, "I'm not as nearly as worried about the Anthropocene as I am about the Manthropocene," and and the committee actually that was af- after that. That's when Naomi Oreskes and and several other women uh, came into the mix, and and there there are enormous issues there, and they're oh, um, yeah. they're entrenched and. Well, and then Jacqueline on our show, of course, has talked a lot about this too. In other contexts, yeah. it's just a really important work. Um, yeah. The um, the other, I wanted to ask you again about the the, the sort of the politics and, um, you know, in a way, your position there, I, I, the George Power Chair. That must have been an interesting discussion, even when that got because Georgia Power does all kinds of electricity generation. Um, they kind of represent the the future and and the and the past uh, a mix and and yeah. um, does that come up in conversations and you know we're the reality is we still are live live in a primarily fossil based uh, energy system and it takes time no matter how passionate we are about rapid decarbonization and uh, I you know and uh, our revenue our our, our wealth uh, in this country compared to India or um, you know Indonesia um, yep. is so overwhelmingly has been historically derived from having a higher energy uh, civilization. Uh, yep. How does that feel? Or just talk about that a little bit. It'd be interesting to hear. <laughs> yeah. So, um, you know, Georgia power of course is, is a, is a utility here in Georgia that has monopoly. And so they own some large fraction of the generation capacity here in Georgia and um, together with the uh, Public Service Commission, which is the regulatory body that oversees them, uh, it decides what to build and how much to charge for it. Of course, right now we have a huge um, kind of hand-wringing set of discussions and decisions around what to do with the new nuclear builds here in Georgia, Plant Vogel. Right. Um, and they have... Um, obviously been very strong proponents of carrying through with that construction. And then there are a lot of 
um, consumer advocates and uh, kind of renewables advocates who are uh, pitched heavily and mightily against them. Uh, you know, from my own perspective, I think Georgia Power is a is a key partner um, in this discussion, especially here in Georgia, where where I sit. Um, they have been an eager and willing partner to talk with me and my students uh, about how the landscape as they see it, the opportunities as they see them. And, you know, I, I will note that they have been installing utility scale solar, uh, you know, keeping pace with any other utility in this nation, kind of neck and neck. They've been very, very aggressive on that particular front. Um, and of course, with their advocacy for the new nuclear from a carbon perspective, um, that would be a lot of uh, no carbon energy in the bank from the Georgia perspective. So right. I don't think it's simple. I think one of the take homes from all of my experience in uh, thinking about how to move the needle on climate is, um, you know, try to engage as much as you can with the partners that are around you in uh, large and small, right? I For think sure. everybody's everybody counts here. You no, know, we can leave nobody behind in these discussions, and I count them as a willing and eager partner. And I'm willing to listen to what they have to say. They're willing to listen to what I have to say, and I know that um, they're they're going to be key players going forward in decisions that uh, affect the uh, generation mix here in, in Georgia. And so I think, just more broadly speaking, beyond Georgia Power, um, it kind of reflects my one of my core approaches which is, you know, I'll, I'll have a conversation anywhere with anybody on climate change. Yeah. And um, to me, it's really about these kinds of conversations and partnerships um, that get outside our own echo chambers and engage people along new axes. And so, you know, I'll, I'll go talk to the current administration about climate change uh, yeah. if, if they wanted. And I'll talk to them about how we can grow our economy and uh, bring climate solutions to the table. I'll point them to the climate caucus in the house that's um, now 70-ish strong. Uh, I will uh, point out that the uh, uh, most Americans want action on climate. Um, there are a lot of win-win-win spaces and a lot of substantive dialogues to have, but um, labeling other people as as the them and people that we will not talk to and not engage with is definitely not the way forward, in my opinion. Well, I think you probably know you and I share that that um, that sense as well. Um, Eric Holthouse, our other host, um, recently um, wrote a pretty powerful manifesto for Grist um, about the importance of nuclear power, and he came very late to that uh, feeling after you know, like many in, who environmental uh, environment yes. focused folks, you know, had resisted it for a very long time, and, and he took yeah. a lot of heat <laughs> for. Oh yeah, and I, I take. I take heat too here in Georgia about this uh, nuclear business. I have gone on record uh, in heavy support of of these nuclear plants that are um, you know on the chopping block here in Georgia. And from my perspective, uh, we need all the carbon in the bank, and we need it now. And so uh, we we can't we can't be beggars and choosers about how fast we turn to low carbon energy sources and what they look like, whether they're a solar panel or a nuclear plant or efficiency gains. It's not an either or, it really has to be all of the above. And I am just dead set on that message and dead set on that outcome. And so uh, we just can't afford to be choosy uh, right now. And so, yeah, I'm, I've been on board with nuclear for about over a decade as I've sensed that it's one of the only scalable solutions 
to um, to get us off our reliance on fossil fuel generation in the near term. However, in my eyes, this hinges very strongly on whether these plants are going to be allowed to successfully go forward. And I'd uh, really hate to be on the other side of a literally shuttered, uh, half-built nuclear plant, thinking right. about what that means for America's energy mix over the next 50 years. Yeah, I've heard some people here in the Northeast who had been um, who had fought against Shoreham on, on Long Island, which was a nuclear power mm. plant. That's exactly the situation you you're describing there, and and now we're kind of you know regretting it in some sense. So, but there are others. I have other good friends who passionately would resist the idea that it's part of the mix. It's it's, and I guess to me, um, one of the hardest things in this whole arena is um, if you are campaigning for one approach to climate solutions. It's, I, I still haven't figured this out. You know, diversity is inevitable. You know, we're human species. We're, we're never, never going to be like army ants all marching in one direction for one reason. Right. Um, and it's even more inevitable at the global scale, you know, China and the United States and Europe will never have the same climate policies. Um, but how, if you're campaigning for one solution, how can you acknowledge diversity and still, have your campaign? <laughs> I don't know. I don't know the answer <laughs> to that question. So if anyone out there knows the answer, it seems that response diversity, uh, there was this transformative paper for me that I read. Uh, I think I've alluded to it on this show before um, by a, an ecologist in, in Stockholm, uh, Thomas Elmquist and others. In 2003, he wrote this paper about ecosystems saying uh, that uh, the ecosystems that are more uh, resilient to an environmental stress are the ones where the species um, that have a certain function in the ecosystem have a diversity of responses. In, in mm. other words, it's not the diversity of species that matters. It's the diversity of responses that makes it more resilient. And I, immediately I was reading this as a man, I said, I wonder if that's the same for societies. And oh my and God, there, yes. there's been one paper so far since then that has taken that. It was in the Serengeti, I think, uh, someone was studying a African uh, grazing culture with that and uh, exploring that question. But I, I think implicitly it feels like it's, it, it's true. Yes. But it's I mean, never you know, my... comfortable. The problem is it's never kind of like comfortable because we all want the world to be the way we are, you know? I don't know. And I don't know the answer. Yeah. Well, I mean, I think, you, first of all, I think uh, it's really important to approach this whole space with, with a lot of humility and then pile on a little bit more because nobody can possibly be the expert enough to say, well, I know the way. Whenever you hear that in this space about climate solutions, uh, give them a sidelong glance <laughs> and uh, recognize that, um, that, that that's probably not uh, the case. So that's how I approach this space is trying to learn uh, day by day, year by year more recognize that I don't have all the answers. Um, but I think that my, I would do anything possible to put more carbon in the bank faster. That's my guiding principle. And, mm -hmm. and that makes me quite predictable in this space, actually. Um, one of the really torturous things about uh, climate solutions, as you point out, is that, you know, the, the nuclear people don't like the 100% solar people. And uh, there's lawsuits and really literally with these parties here in Georgia right now. And uh, in terms of the climate scientists, it's just the, the worst possible outcome uh, to, to pit these nuclear folks against the solar folks, against you know, these carbon tax votes. I mean, the whole thing. Um, people are so quick to, to criticize other approaches to a low carbon future. 
And, and that's just the nature of the narrative right now. And it's, it's so wholly destructive. And when you talk about resilience, um, you know, is it, embodied in, in diverse approaches and responses, um, this is what it's all about right now. And in, in my eyes, uh, getting more diverse voices out there into this space and not contributing, purposefully not contributing to tearing down the other camp of climate solutions, right. um, purposefully checking yourself and your limitations before you go uh, spouting off and, and tearing down another approach as uh, hopelessly uh, you know, idealistic or completely unfounded or <laughs> et cetera. Um, and you, of course, you see this every day on Twitter, but you can be purposefully interacting in the space to uh, simply not do those things and contribute to the kinds of discussions and, and forward momentum that we desperately need. Because if we let this rip and tear each other down, uh, we will get nowhere. And people from looking the sidelines and saying, I don't know what to do with those folks. Um, so, you know, in all of the above, everybody in the tent, let's do this together approach um, is really what I hope to bring to the table and less vitriol, less, I know everything, less your jerk kind of narratives. Um, and, and that has <laughs> to be purposeful and mindful because I'm very passionate. It's not for lack of passion here. I'm one of the most passionate people about carbon and climate change. Um, and, and everybody who knows me knows that. And so, yes, it's frustrating. Yes. Um, I would love to see certain things happening faster. Yes, I think there are profound obstacles, in some cases, particular individuals who stand in our way, which makes them, uh, which makes it very frustrating. But despite all of that, to behave and move and speak purposefully is a daily challenge that I take very seriously, um, especially in this era of, of rampant, hurtful, caustic rhetoric all over the place that that has been so destructive to this country, to all causes, but particularly to the climate cause. Well, I can't begin to tell you how valuable this conversation has been from my perspective. I'm hoping that the Warm Regards um, audience feels the same way. Uh, thank you so much for uh, spending some time with us. Um, and I look forward to being down there to uh, talk about this more at, uh, at Georgia Tech uh, March 27th. So any listeners in that yes. region, um, you can find find out more about that. I guess just Google for Kim Cobb, Revkin, and uh, Georgia Tech, and you'd find some information. Um, yeah. Thanks for being with us, Kim. Yeah. Thanks so much for having me, and thanks so much for your all your efforts that you do with this podcast and, and elsewise. Um, Y'all are heroes to me. <laughs> Great. Uh, and that's our show. If you like what we're doing here, please tell a friend. And as always, feel free to hit us up with your thoughts on future guests, show ideas, or pretty much anything. Our email address is ourwarmregards at gmail.com. You can follow us on Twitter at ourwarmregards. We really want to drop the hour, but uh, that'll happen. <laughs> For our other hosts, Jacqueline and Eric, who will be back in the mix in the weeks ahead, and our producers, Eric Mack and Jesse N. Baines, I'm Andy Revkin. Thanks for listening, everybody.
We'd like to thank Wonder Capital for their support of the Warm Regards podcast. Wonder Capital is an award-winning online investment platform that allows individuals to invest in solar energy projects across the United States. Earn up to 8.5% annually while diversifying your portfolio, curbing pollution, and combating global climate change. Create an account free of charge at wondercapital.com warm. Wonder Capital, do well and do good.